ಓಸುದೇವಸುತ ಕಂಸಚಾಣೂರಮರ್ದನಂ ದೇವಕೀ ಪರಮಂದಂ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ವಂದೇ ಜಗದ್ಗುರು So it's been a little disrupted over the past few months. First of all, I went off to India and then I had multiple uh, speaking commitments in different places across the United States. So, and most of it, the brunt was borne by the Gita class because it's on a Friday evening and the invitations are usually over the weekend. So I would be traveling. We are on the eighth chapter. One way of looking at the Bhagavad Gita, which has 18 chapters, is to divide it into uh, three sets of six chapters each. uh chapters 1 to 6 and then 7 uh, to 12 then 13 to 18 and then equate these three sets with the great vedantic saying tattvamasi that thou art uh, you know the idea in non dual vedanta advaita vedanta is that the central teaching of all of these texts is that you are the ultimate reality your own nature our own nature if we realize who we are is brahman the ultimate reality now tat is that absolute reality tvam is you the individual being now the first six chapters according to this division the first set of six chapters uh, concentrates on finding out who we are and the next six chapters the one where we are now from chapter 7 onwards focuses on that as g- the god of religion the theist the god of theistic religions you know the creator preserver destroyer of the world and the final six chapters will tell us about the oneness uh, how the what our reality and the reality of god are one and the same it does not mean that you are god so that is a common mistake non dual vedanta does not c- commit that blasphemy saying and that uh, the, this ultimate megalomania of saying i am god no no we are i am as individual sentient being just as i see myself and there is a god of the universe which we take on faith religions tell us but advaita vedanta says our reality and the reality of this universe is one reality our reality if we inquire we are not the body not the mind we are this existence consciousness bliss the atman pure consciousness and that pure consciousness with is also in the background of this universe as god and we are that pure consciousness knowing that uh, sets us free from samsara again a very non dualistic advaitic reading of the bhagavad gita there are any number of other interpreters who would not agree with any of this at all all right but now we are in the second set of six chapters chapter 7 8 and so on and these are generally focused on god our relationship to god is always one of devotion worship devotion faith surrender all the theistic religions the varieties of theism found within hinduism vaishnavism shaivism shaktism or the other theistic religions of the world uh, christianity islam judaism all of them are devotional in nature uh, so they talk about god which you take on faith and there is love devotion uh, surrender worship and so on and that's the main theme of these theme of these chapters also in this eighth chapter sri krishna has said that um, the one who continuously remembers god keeps his mind and heart on god throughout life 
will attain to God after the death of this body, will not go through the cycle of births and deaths, will not be subject to coming back and forth. The samsara, which all the Indian religions speak about, they're born and then you go through all, you know, you're growing up and establishing relationships, attachments in the world, and then aging and disease and death. Everything that you have gathered is also snatched away again from you. And not once, again and again and again. So you can see it's not, a, not really good news that we don't die with the death of the body. We are put back on the rack, as it were, again and again, until we realize that we are not these limited creatures. We become enlightened and we are set free, which was the purpose all along. So that's the kind of worldview, general worldview, not just Vedanta. All Hindu systems, Buddhist systems, Jain, Sikh, Sikhism, all Indian systems have this idea of a cycle of birth and death. That's a good uh, segue into the 15th verse, where he will say, those who attain me, here he, uh, Krishna is talking as God, those who attain me do not come back into, do not come back into this world of eternal return, you know, uh, being born and dying again and again, that stops. 15th verse. Mamupetya punar janma dukkhalayam ashashvatam napnuvanti mahatmana samsiddhim paramam gata. It's a beautiful verse, actually. The great soul ones, the mahatmas, having attained me, have no more birth, which is the abode of misery. Uh, which is the abode of which is the abode of misery and is non-eternal for they have attained the highest perfection. So attaining God, attaining the absolute, attaining me, they are set free. Free from what? From the cycle of birth and death. Rebirth, birth, rebirth, death, again rebirth. What's the problem? Why would you want to be set free from this? Dukkhalayam ashashvatam. This is the, the house of sorrows. The veil of sorrows, as it is said. Alaya means house. In Sanskrit, alaya, vidyalaya, school, uh, house of knowledge. Devalaya, temple, the house of God. And now Krishna calls this, this world, Dukkalaya, the house of sorrows. Ashashvatam. Why is it the house of sorrows? Because everything is unstable here. Everything perishes and goes away. This is very Buddhistic in it, this idea. The Buddha's idea was exactly this. That everything is sorrow here because everything is impermanent, momentary and empty. Anityam. Uh, shanikam, shunyam. Here Krishna says the same thing. Dukkhalayam ashashvatam. This house of sorrows. You are not going to come back, be sent back again to this house of sorrows. This unstable, ever-changing, this veil of tears. Such are the Mahatmas, the great ones. Why? Then what happens to them? If they don't come back here, where do they go? Samsiddhim paramam gata. Uh, they attain the highest glory. Paramam, transcendental. Samsiddhim, perfection. They attain to per transcendental perfection. Um, before I forget, this question of birth and rebirth, a couple of funny stories. One is, right here in New York, Swami Madhavanandaji, he was the president of our order in the 1960s. Um, a very great monk, long before my time, of course. Um, and uh, he was known as, as a very strict uh, disciplinarian and, and extraordinary scholar, a man of very few words, uh, deeply meditative and enlightened being. Everybody knew that. So um, 
in his old age, he had a tumor in the brain and it was diagnosed. And at that time, proper medical facilities were not available in Calcutta. Swami Nikhilanandaji, who was here in the Vedanta uh, Center here, in the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Center on the east side. So in New York, we have two centers, the one where I am sitting now, the Vedanta Society of New York, and the other one across the park, uh, the east side center, the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Center. Swami Nikhilanandaji was there and he was a very good friend of Swami Madhavanandaji. So he wanted to do his friend a good turn. And so he wrote uh, from here, extending an invitation to Swami Madhavanji that, that please come to the United States. We will uh, undertake all expenses um, and get you treated, operated for the brain tumor and you know all the post-operative care. Everything you'll do, you stay with me. And uh, so Madhavanji comes to the United States. All this is very nicely described in the book, Six Lighted Windows, Six Lighted Windows, written by Swami Yogeshananda. Swami Yogeshananda just passed just a few months ago, last year, I think, at the age of 96. Six Lighted Windows. It's about the six enlightened Swami's masters he met in his life. Madhavanji was one of them. Anyway, so Madhavanji comes here, and there's a funny side story to that. So to come here, he had to wear a Western dress, um, you know, with a suit and um, trousers and shoes. So in the Calcutta airport, where he was the president of the order, so all the monks uh, went to see him off. And the airport staff looked on, you know, they were aghast. Who's this gentleman who's sitting dressed in a, in a Western suit and all the revered monks of Belurmata coming and bowing down to him so respectfully? <laughs> who's this person? So he came and he had the operation here. And he recovered. So there are many very interesting stories about him here. Um, before I get to the main story. So this is a very Indian way of telling stories. So you have a main story, but you have a lot of little side stories also. Uh, for example, uh, Swami Nikhilanji knew the nature of Swami Madhavanandaji, that he was very strict and a very austere monk. So they had built a rail on the staircase for Madhavanji to hold when he would climb up because after the operation, there would be impaired mobility to help him to climb the stairs. There was a railing installed there. And Swami Nikhilanji told all the devotees in the ashram, never tell the Swami, the visiting Swami, that this was put in before him. And uh, so, but people forgot, you know, the operation was concluded. The Swami came back to the center. He was in post-operative care and physiotherapy. He's climbed, slowly trying to climb back upstairs painfully and uh, um, devotee helpfully said, completely forgetting what had the, the warning, helpfully said, Swami, use the rail. We, we put it in just for you. The moment he said that, the Swami, from that time till the la last day he stayed in the center, he never touched that rail again. <laughs> uh, so he was like that. Uh, he, he was Swami Tathagatanji's Sannyasa Guru, I think. What, what, does, what did Sangeeta say? Sanyasa Guru, correct. Now there's a story, the point of this, all of this. One day, Swami Madhavanji was here and uh, there was a lot of discussion about the birth control pill at that time. That was the latest innovation. So it, people were for it, people were against it. There was a raging debate. So among the devotees, um, they were talking about it and the Swami was at quite a distance. And they of course thought the Swami wouldn't be interested in such a thing. From that distance, the Swami said, I am all for it. 
And so David looked astonished. Swami, what do you mean? He said, birth control and death control. No more births and no more deaths. <laughs> so that's what he meant here. There are no more birth and death, the cycle of birth and death. The other funny story I have shared many times earlier, it's one of our Swamis in Uttarkashi in the Himalayas, in the cottage where we stay there when we go. He had this bee in his bonnet about all the Indian systems believing in multiple births and deaths, many lives, and all the you know, the Jews, Christians, and Muslims believing in one life. So, which is true? Many lives or one life? Punar janma hai ki nahi, whether there is rebirth or not. And very soon the monks in our cottage, they got tired of this endless debate. So, he took his arguments outside to another a nearby Vedanta school, where there was a very noted, great teacher of non-dual Vedanta at that time. So, our monk, he goes, and this I've heard from him, from his own lips. He goes to this great teacher, and asks him in Hindi, um, Swamiji, punar janma hai ki nahi? Is there rebirth or not? And the teacher said, I'll tell you in Hindi and translate. Jab janma hi nahi, to punar janma kahe ka matma ji? Maap mandukya padhiye. When there is no birth, where is the question of rebirth? Go and read mandukya. You know, the ultimate conclusion of Dvaita Vedanta is you were not even born. <laughs> this thing is an appearance, the birth of the body. In reality, your reality is Brahman, which is unborn, which never comes into uh, human birth at all, in any birth at all. So those are the two stories. The great ones, having attained me, do not come back into this life. Um, Swami Ram Sukhdasji, whose commentary is also very nice, he makes an interesting remark. Mahatma, the great soul, you know, Mahatma Gandhi was called Mahatma. So Mahatma, Krishna uses this word in the Gita a few times and he makes a very interesting observation. Ramsukdas, he makes this interesting observation. At no point does Krishna refer to a Jnana Yogi or Raja Yogi or Karma Yogi as Mahatma. Every time he has referred to somebody as Mahatma is only a Bhakti, Bhakti Yogi. The person who is a devotee of God, that person is referred to as a Mahatma. So that's um, interesting observation by Ram Sukhdasji. He goes on to make another observation that coming back into birth and into this house of sorrows, notice just being born and being in this world is not a cause of sorrow. Enlightened ones, all the enlightened ones, they are in this world, but they are supposed to have gone beyond sorrow. Not only that, when an incarnation comes, along with an incarnation, what is called Parshada, the, the companions of the incarnation come. In every incarnation of God, there is a group of enlightened beings who come to help the incarnation in the divine play. So Ram Sukhdasji's observation is, for them also, this is not a house of sorrow. Once you are enlightened, in this very life itself, it stops being a house of sorrow. Sri Ramakrishna says it's a house of mirth, Mojarkuti. It's a house of mirth. After enlightenment, post-enlightenment. And not only that, such enlightened beings, among them, some of them do retain their individuality. They do not disappear into the nameless infinite. So they retain their individuality and they may even take birth again to help humanity. And for them, it's not a house of sorrow. So neither in this life after enlightenment, nor if they even come lifetime after lifetime again, 
to help others. For whom is it a house of sorrow? For those who live for themselves. Ram Sukhdasji makes this point. Those who use, um, those who use, it says vastu, vastu vyakti kriya, things of this world for their own pleasure and profit. Those who use activities in their world for their own personal individual pleasure, uh, gain. And people in this world, relationships with people in this world for our own individual pleasure. The moment you use it, you, he says, bhokta, you are a consumer in this world. Your basic attitude is of a consumer in this world. Whether it is for things, it could be food, it could be um, a vacation, it could be whatever you see in this world. If your idea, if our idea is I am consuming, it will make me happy. You are writing um, you know, a guarantee of suffering. If our attitude towards the activities we do in the world, at home, in our community, it's all for my self-gratification. I'll become richer, more popular, more powerful. You're writing a guarantee of your own uh, of sorrow. And if you use people and relationships for myself, I, me, myself, again, you're writing a guarantee of suffering. Anybody who uses things of the world, whatever it is, gadgets, money, house, property, whatever it is, and um, activities in the world, work, all kinds of personal and, um, you know, in your professional life, and people, to make myself happy, you are writing a guarantee of, of um, we are bound to suffer, you're tying yourself to suffering. But those who use um, the things and activities and relationships with people for the benefit of others, that I don't want anything, I'm here with this little knowledge, little money, little capacity, whatever little um, love and affection I have, I can do so much for others. If that attitude comes, then you will be happy. And he says, if that can now be connected to God, it is my worship of God. All my activities in the world, all the things in the world are meant as for my worship of God and my relationships with people. That also is a worship of God. Then you will be happy. So this is the thing. That Dukkhalam, it's a house of sorrows if we go around as a consumer. But if I go around as the servant of the Lord, it is a house of joy, a house of mirth. He makes a further observation. Before that, let me just add one thing. This particular commentator, those who know Ram Sukhdasji, he was a very great monk who passed a few years ago, lived to an age of, I think, 100, 304. Uh, I told you, I, I think you remember, once I had a chance of meeting him and I was so restless and I was visiting different monks on the bank of the Ganga in the Himalayas and he used to live in this cottage there. Somebody told him, he's a great teacher of, of Gita, you should go and meet him. I said, later, when I come back, very unwise, he was 100 years old. So if you say, I'm going to come back in my next trip, how do you know he's going to be there? And that's what happened. The next time I came back, he was gone already. Anyway, uh, the philosophical background uh, is important. Ram Sudarshi is not a um, non-dualist. He was what is called a qualified monist, Vishishtadvaita. According to qualified monism, um, the ultimate reality, Brahman, is an organic whole. That means all of us, all beings, all of us, and the entire universe, living and non-living, we are parts, components, tiny bits of the divine. The divine is an organic whole of everything. We're all part of it. Isn't it 
what Advaita Vedanta says? No, not at all. Advaita Vedanta says there is no all. There is only one reality and you are that. Every, that all which you are seeing is an appearance. Vishishta Advaita, qualified monism says it's not an appearance. It's real. The way you see this world is a real thing. Only thing what you don't see is that there is an underlying unity. That underlying unity is God. More technical language. Jiva Jagat Vishishta Brahma. Brahman is the absolute reality qualified by the all sentient beings and all non-sentient entities. Now, why am I saying this? Ram Sukhdasji makes a nice observation here. And it applies only if you are in this philosophical framework, not to a non-dualist. He says that those who follow philosophy's teachings like Sankhya, Buddhism, Advaita, all of these, which are non-devotional, which are based on self-inquiry only. They leave God out of the picture. There are many such paths. There is an all possibility that they'll free themselves from suffering and attain to peace. That's what is promised and they will get it. But the extra special, the add-on which a devotee gets, the great joy of love, of he calls it prema, that mad love of God, which is extraordinary, fills your heart with unending bliss in this life and beyond. It's the greatest love story of the universe, the love between the human and the divine. That these people will not get. Which people? Those who have a non-theistic philosophy. They will free themselves from suffering and they will attain to peace. That's it. Um, so what will happen? What, do the, what does the devotee get more? By the process of, um, of purification and self-inquiry, you come to realize, I am not the body, not the mind. I am consciousness. Good. So far. When you come to be aware of, you are like a, spark of a blazing fire, a tiny ray from a tremendous blazing sun, uh, the infinite mass of consciousness, which is God, of which you are one tiny ray. You become aware of that and immediately you establish this extraordinary loving relationship with God. And that loving relationship, he says, pratikshana vardhamana, moment to moment, it is overflowing and increasing forever. So that extraordinary bliss you deprive yourself of uh, if you follow those much more dry uh, philosophical you know, paths of insight into oneself. That's his point of view. Here's a point. I mean, if you ask me as a non-dualist, what does he, would you agree with that? And say, yes, Ananda in Advaita Vedanta, bliss, is basically an appreciation of your infinite nature. Your infinite existence consciousness, an appreciation of that fills you with Peace and fulfillment. That's Ananda. But this positive love of God, that is a unique contribution of bhakti. And the bhakti movements, the devotional movements, they, devotional movements, they claim that this is more than uh, moksha. This is more than uh, spiritual freedom. This endless this love with God. Okay. So they attain that. And for such people, this world is not a house of sorrows. They can come back to it as many times as the Lord wills. And for them, it is all eternal loving service of God. 
they do not use people objects and activities in the world for their own gratification they don't need to they are ever fulfilled by the love of god any other point here no next verse is a very soaring sublime verse 16 abramha bhuvana loka punaravartinorjuna mamupetya tukanteya punarjanmana vidyate all the worlds o arjuna including the world of brahma are subject to recurrence but after attaining me there is no rebirth o son of kunti beautiful verse abramha bhuvanandoka all the worlds all the universes the lokas are universes all the universes in this vast universe what we see as a universe is actually a multiverse not in the physics sense old indian cosmology said there are multiple universes packed in here we see only one this physical universe but there are many other levels according to that cosmology again shared by hindus jains buddhists a very complex cosmology of layered universes all of them krishna says they are subject to arising and persisting and disappearance they come they play around for a while and they disappear back merge back and then they come back again and play around for a while and go go back into the source so this continues this cycle abramha bhuvanan lokal lokaha punaravartino arjuna o arjuna up to the highest heaven the, the most magnificent sphere of brahma not brahman brahma the creator of the universe up to that level what you might call the highest heaven the seventh heaven Uh, literally it is the seventh heaven by even by the hindu cosmology <laughs> so there is something there up to that all of them are subject to arising persisting and disappearance they all come back this is the world of return uh, eternal recurrence coming back again and again and again not just this little human life all life all worlds all universes they cycle through this creation existence and destruction again and again and again but those who attain me they do not they they escape this punar janmana vidyate they do not go into the cycle of birth and rebirth so the question here is what about heaven the theistic religions all talk about heaven so in the in vedanta in buddhism jainism there are they they say that there are multiple heavens there are multiple worlds these heavens are worlds also and they are also like this world much better much better than this world much more happier much better place but there is still one problem they come to an end there is another problem there are gradations there so there is jealousy and competition there you can move to a better neighborhood <laughs> so there are multiple neighborhoods in this cosmos you can move to what in Uh, you can move uh, uh, uptown here you know the upper west or the upper east or bel air or other places in you know uh, in los angeles all these up uh, upscale neighborhoods you can move to higher and higher heavens but they are all infected with the same problem which is here they don't have the miseries which uh, which affect ordinary life here uh, human and non human things are much better in those heavens but they all come to an end and there is jealousy there is better and worse 
higher and lower there also there is gradation competition the higher gods and the lower gods and so on and none of them are all gods with small g they are all beings like us um, immensely more powerful but still sentient beings like us and all of it comes to an end um swami nishraya shanandji who uh, established the vedanta work in south africa many years ago he was a disciple of swami shivananda so he used to teach vedanta with most extraordinary stories one of his stories is this about this uh, uh, multiple heavens and coming back uh, he says well you know what these heavens are like i flew from south africa from durban to mumbai in those days bombay by air india so i had to purchase a ticket and uh, then i got into the plane they were air hostesses who said come come this is your seat and these are almost literally the language you find in the karmakandas in the in the vedas ehi ehi so there are beings astral beings who will say come come you this is what you have earned after our death we go and see that this is the ticket you have purchased so i go and sit down there and then we take off we fly at 30000 feet and uh, there is a movie playing and the air hostesses bring us nice food and drink it's all wonderful it's temperature cool temperature and there are nice folk around and there's entertainment throughout you can sleep and there's more entertainment and more food and drink and then and then what happens well then you land in mumbai and the captain says that uh, we have landed in mumbai now it is 100 in the shade and 100% humidity outside um thank you for flying with air india no i want to stay here don't kick me out i'm sorry you have to leave now you have to you can buy you can fly with us again buy a ticket again you can fly with us again and you are kicked out into 100% humidity and 105 in the shade <laughs> exactly like that when we generate a lot of punya good merit after the death of this death of this physical body the subtle body and the sentient being now goes to other worlds and it's like and there are beings who say you have accumulated so much merit here is your seat you know this particular heaven and these are the enjoyments we have for you and it goes on all very nicely until geeta itself krishna says shine punye matya lokam vishanti as your merit is exhausted it runs down you are again sent back to the world we are we are back to earth again <laughs> back to human life and they say that it is worse for the dwellers in these heavens because they have no old age they have no human wear and tear they have no di- uh, uh, disease so when the end comes it comes suddenly it's over go, off you go back to the world and so there are depictions of beings kicked out of heaven you know falling back to the earth and they cry out alas alas we are lost <laughs> and this has happened not once in the one might think it would be nice to experience that well we have all of us have again and again and again ad nauseum so we have all experienced it it all comes to an end that is the great defect ah uh, brahma bhuvanan lokar he says up to the highest heaven even the most spiritual heaven uh, that is called brahma loka now there is a one point here the uh, heaven the heaven mentioned heaven with a capital h mentioned in the theistic religions the heaven the christian heaven the muslim uh, the uh, jannat and so on and the hindu vaikuntha uh, the kailasha of the shaiva shaivites the devi loka of the devotees of the uh, mother goddess 
or even those who do not believe in God, the pure land of the Buddha, they are eternal heavens. They are not like what I mentioned just now. They are meant for, for spiritual seekers. Even there, if you go there, you still have some desire left. You still have to come back. So Brahma Loka again will send you back. The Brahma Loka is there. And as long as this universe lasts, the Brahma Loka also lasts. And when the universe is gone, that also, is, that also disappears along with the rest of the universe. But those in the Brahma Loka, the only advantage is from there one can attain to full illumination and see that you are, um, you are the infinite and you are free forever. If you do not, you are going to come back to this world again. Um, so he says, up to the world of Brahma, everything comes back. Everything is recycled. Yeah, that's a good, good uh, paradigm. We are all thrown into the recycle bin. And we are reprocessed again and come back here again and go through it until we attain a realization. Then next. Some very nice verses here. Sahasra yoga paryantam arya brahmano vidu ratrim yoga sahasrantam teho ratra vidu janaha those who know Brahma's day that lasts for a thousand yugas are know, knowers of day and night. The knowers of Brahma's day and night. So the highest heaven, which is presided over by Brahma, not Brahman, the absolute reality, but Brahma, the creator of this universe, who is identified with the cosmic mind. So that, um, so the, the age of Brahma, Brahma also appears with the creation of the universe and disappears with the dissolution of the universe. So Brahma's age is the age of the entire universe. Now there is a nice calculation here. I'm quoting from a commentary on um, the Gita written by Sridhar Swami, who lived about 600 years ago. This is a beautiful um, commentary. So there he talks about this calculation. He says, Brahma and all the other inhabitants of Brahma Loka, they live for that long. How do you compute this time? What is the age of Brahma? How long are we talking about? One year of human beings is equal to one day and night of the gods. So 365 days is one day and night. Is day and night together, one day, 24 hours for, for the gods in heavens. Then compute fortnights, months, etc., with such days and nights. So, one year for us is one day for them. So, a week for them would be seven of our years, a month for them would be 30 of our years, and one year for the gods would be 365 years for us. One year for a god. Now, if you compute in this way, one quartet of yogas stands for 12,000 such years. So the yugas, the four ages, Satya Yuga, Dwapara Yuga, Treta and uh, Kali Yuga. Satya, Treta, Dwapara and Kali Yuga. The four ages, total 12,000 years. And that's 12,000 into 365. That's the number of our years it will be. So it's more than 3 million, uh, nearly 4 million years for us. So that is, that is four yugas. 
and you multiply that by 1000 a thousand such yugas is the day of brahma so let's say 4 million years and then into 1000 4000 million years which is like 4 billion years very interesting that comes approximately to the age of the universe this physical universe actually 4 billion years is the day of brahma and the night of brahma is um, 4 billion more years so total of 8 billion years is one day for brahma and he lives 100 such years so one day is like 8 billion years for us and uh, multiply that by 365 is one year for brahma and then into 100 is the lifetime of one brahma so that is the lifetime of one universe created existing and then dissolution a lot like our days and nights we wake up we spend a day and then we go back into sleep and then we wake up again similarly brahma spends uh, a whole lifetime like that and uh, the entire universe goes through these cycles so this is an enormous scale of time i remember reading carl sagan carl sagan and cosmos when we were kids they used to show it on tv in india beautifully done there's a book also cosmos um so carl sagan i think there's a new serial cosmos uh, narrated by neil degrasse tyson probably so carl sagan uh, he writes in that book that all these ancient mythologies of time they were paltry compared to our modern physics the cosmology we have got now they spoke at the most of a few thousand years. They couldn't think beyond that, the ancient, ancient human beings. But physics today, cosmology, speaks about billions of years, the lifetimes of stars, of galaxies, and the lifetime of a universe. And then he adds, the only uh, other time scale which is even more extraordinary and impressive than our modern understanding of physics and cosmology is the ancient Hindu understanding of this universe, which talks about staggering periods of time. So in multiple billions and billions of years and multiple universes. Of course, not in the modern scientific paradigm, but they had this. At least they had extraordinarily um, you know, wide and fertile imagination in those days. So the vast a conception of the vast. So here he says, all the heavens also come to an end. And the lifetime of Brahma for thousands of ages, for billions and billions of years, but that also comes to an end. Everything comes to an end. I had mentioned in this class earlier of that beautiful um, science fiction story uh, of um, the nine billion names of God. I don't know if you remember. Some of you must might remember. It's a very. Um, it was by Arthur C. Clarke, I think. Yes. And they made a short documentary about it also. Uh, somebody pointed out to me, it's available on YouTube, Nine Billion Names of God. Do see it. if you. It's very nicely made by a French filmmaker. The original short story, which I read when I was a kid, was by Arthur C. Clarke, if I remember. And uh, it's about these IBM engineers in India, uh, in, in the United States, after the Second World War. They get an order for a computer in those, those huge mainframes, you know, with punching punch cards and all. Um, 
And the order comes from Tibet. And this was pre-Chinese invasion Tibet. And not many people knew much about Tibetan Buddhism. And also the Tibetan Buddhism in any way doesn't talk about God. So still, but the story itself is very interesting. And the engineers go, they fly from, uh, so they ask the Tibetan monk who has come to order the computer, why do you need a computer? They said, we have been engaged in this project for hundreds of years. We have to chant the nine billion names of God. What's that? These names are generated by some kind of formula and we have to chant them. And we have, when we are finished chanting, the, um, then our task is done. Well, what will happen when you finish chanting? Well, the universe will come to an end. And the, of course, the scientists and the engineers, they roll their eyes. And, but anyway, an order is an order. So they decide to transport the computer uh, from their IBM office in the United States to uh, India and then to Nepal and then to, the, then to Tibet. So by plane, and they take it and then by on the back of yaks and all in a caravan, they take it to the monastery in Tibet and they install generators. There's no electricity there. Generators and they set up the computer and they program the computer to chant the names of God. It can be done much faster. If the monks had done it, it would have been done in hundreds of years, but the computer can do it in a couple of weeks or so. So it chant, starts chanting and the monks are all very serious and very happy. And then one of the engineers says to the other, you know, we are in trouble because the moment the computer finishes their silly project of chanting these 9 billion names, well, nothing is going to happen. And then the monks are going to blame us. We'll be in trouble. They'll beat us up or worse. You know, We'd better, better escape from here before the computer finishes chanting the 9 billion names. When they see nothing is happening, they'll be so disappointed, they'll blame us. So at night, they escape. And the story is that... Uh, chanting is going to, so it's a very thrilling conclusion. Uh, so the chanting is going to end that night at midnight. And so they are escaping from the monastery and they look back at the monastery and um, they know that the chanting has ended. They're worried are the monks, monks going to chase us and beat us up. And so they're going through the dark plateau, the Tibetan plateau with icy mountains all around. And the last story, line of the story is one of the engineers says to the other, look, and they look up at the sky and they see, the, that's the last line of the story. They see the stars going out one by one and, you know, a, a great darkness spreading across the universe. So the universe is ending. <laughs> but it does come to an end. Not in, uh, you don't have to chant the nine billion names of God or um, a computer chanting can't do it, but it will come to an end. And then, not an end, it will start all over again. And then, again, it will start end. And then it will start all over again. And I can keep doing this till the end of the class, but you get the idea. So the basic principle is given in the verse number 18. Abhyakta dhyaktaya sarva prabhavantya haragame Ratriagame praliyante tatreva vyakta sangyake. From the unmanifest, all manifested beings are born at the advent of Brahma's day, and at the approach of his night, they get merged in that very thing called the unmanifest. So, the whole our basic universe, this universe we exist in, it is created when Brahma wakes up and all gets merged back into uh, the unmanifest when Brahma goes to sleep. And the entire cosmos, including Brahma, also will disappear at what is called Mahapralaya, at the end of Brahma's life, the hundred years. So there are cycles within cycles. From the unmanifest, the basic principle is this, from the unmanifest, which is Maya, 
from Maya, all beings emerge and they exist for millions and billions of years. We all go through life, um, you know, birth, life, death, again, birth, life, death, so many times. Hopefully in this period, we'll get enlightenment. If we don't, Maya is not exhausted. Maya will withdraw the entire universe back into itself at the end of one cycle. And we will all remain in our seed form. And again, when the universe is projected, we'll be thrown back into it to play again until we get enlightenment. And this goes on. Basic principle, the universe emerges from Maya, exists for some time, and then disappears back into Maya. From unmanifest to manifest, from manifest to unmanifest. Just like our day. From deep sleep, we emerge into dreams. From dreams into waking. And then from waking back into sleep and dreams, and again into deep sleep. So this cycle of sleep, dream, and waking, it continues. This defines our day, the basic paradigm of our days. And the idea is that the universe also goes through that. From an unmanifest state into a subtle state. The science does not talk about that. And then into a physical growth state. There might be a big bang or something at that point. Uh, and that goes on for billions of years. Again, that growth state disappears into a subtle state, the subtle state back into the unmanifest. And again, the cycle is repeated. So multiple universes, multiple times, endlessly. Then 19. Bhuta grama saivayam bhutva bhutva praliyate ratryagame vashaf partha prabhavatyaharagame That very multitude of beings being born again and again is absorbed at the approach of night, O partha and at the approach of the day is born again in spite of itself. So this day and night is the day and night of Brahma. It is the beginning and end of this universe. Uh, within the existence of the universe, we are born and die many times. Our bodies are born and they die many times. Many civilizations come up and disappear. Planets come up. Um, civilizations come up. Living beings evolve and they disappear back again. All of that happens in one daytime of one day of Brahma. At the night, the entire physical universe is absorbed back into uh, the unmanifest. And again, next day, next day is the day of Brahma. And this continues for the whole lifetime of Brahma, that, that Brahma. And that Brahma also comes to an end when there's something called Mahapralaya, the Brahma and the highest heaven, Brahmaloka, that also gets absorbed back into Maya. Then only consciousness and Maya exists. And then again, it, the whole cycle starts. It's a stupendous, mind-blowing conception, stretching across billions and billions of years, millions of lifetimes, millions of universes, and endless stars, planets, galaxies. Sri Ramakrishna says, I saw the source where universes, like he said, like those baby crabs, which are born on the bank of the Ganga, shoals of them, swarms of them, they walk back into the river. So he says, universes like that, I saw being born and spinning off, you know. Um, compared to that, what is one little life, one little civilization, one little planet also? And he says, helplessly, at the, at the beginning of day, they are projected into this existence, physical existence. And at the, at the coming of the night, coming of the night, not the night of our life, it comes at the age of 80, 90, 100, the coming of the night for the whole universe, the entire game is absorbed back into the unmanifest. And he says, helplessly, avasha. You can't say, let me play a little more. 
you know, mom and dad is not going to allow you to play any little more because all your little friends are going home and even the playground is going to disappear <laughs> because the whole of the universe is going to disappear now at the at the descent of the night uh, it's it's all going to disappear back but you will get your chance to play again tomorrow when the universe is created again so it's a very extraordinary uh, vision one more verse the point of all of this 20th what are we to do Beyond this unmanifest, there is another unmanifest eternal being that does not perish when all creatures perish. Parastasmatu bhavanya abhyakto abhyaktatsanatana. Beyond Maya. There is another unmanifest. Why is Maya called unmanifest? Maya is like our deep sleep. Waking and dreaming are like the creation of the universe. There are things, there are objects, there are distinct, there are differences, there are experiences. Everything drawn into a blank uniform oneness, that's like Maya. The entire cosmos becomes like that. But beyond our waking, dreaming, deep sleep is you, the consciousness. You illumine. In you there is waking, in you there is dreaming, in you there is deep sleep. And you are the illuminer of all the experiences, all that happens in waking, dreaming, deep sleep. This you, the fourth. You know, in Mandukya, it was called Turiya, consciousness. You are the fourth, which illumines your own waking, dreaming, deep sleep. This Turiya is also the consciousness which illumines the cosmic waking, dreaming, deep sleep. The creation of universes, the existence of universes, and the disappearance of universes all happens illumined by this consciousness. And in this consciousness, um, and as nothing but this consciousness. Three steps. Appears to consciousness, illumined by consciousness. Exists in this consciousness, not outside. And actually does not exist in consciousness also. Consciousness alone appears as its own universe. This is the other unman, the greater unmanifest beyond the unmanifest. What is the unmanifest? Maya. What is the other unmanifest beyond Maya? Consciousness. So, Sounds great, but what is it to me? You are that ultimate reality. You are that consciousness. The same consciousness. Identified one, one individual being, right you, I, right here, is the witness to the individual waking, dreaming, deep sleep. Individual lives, births and growth and aging and deaths. Same consciousness. And identified with Maya is the witness to the cosmic creation, existence and disappearance. So, a tremendous declaration here. This is the point of all. Parastasmatu. Beyond all of this, transcending all of this, there is a reality. What is that? It's an unmanifest. Well, we just talked about an unmanifest, Maya. No, this is beyond that Maya. This is higher than that Maya. It is Sat, existence itself. Chit, consciousness itself. And Ananta, endlessness, infinitude, which is also Ananda, bliss. When all beings, from the most insignificant creature up to Brahma, the master of the entire universe, when they all disappear, you, the consciousness, you exist. When the universe is there, it shines in your light, you are there. When the universe is not there, you continue. The absence of the universe is illumined by your presence. That 
is that ultimate absolute. That is Brahman. Atman is Brahman. Tattvamasi. That thou art. You are that. And we, the whole goal is to realize that. And Advaita Vedanta has no objection. He says, suppose you someone says, but this is the chapter on bhakti, devotion to God. Why are you bringing in the absolute reality, Nirguna Brahman? There's no problem there. Nirguna Brahman, the absolute reality, and Saguna Brahman, God of the universe, theistic God. They are one and the same. Same consciousness in association with Maya is called God, Ishwara, Saguna Brahman. Same consciousness by itself is Nirguna Brahman. Which one is real? There's no which one. There's only one. From the perspective of this universe, it is God. From its own perspective, it is the absolute reality. What is it to me? You are that absolute reality. From the perspective of one body and mind, that absolute reality is you. From the perspective of all bodies and minds in this entire universe, that absolute reality is God. In itself, what is it? Absolute reality. Brahman. <laughs> All right. This is a beautiful point to end it. And, and there is no problem with devotion also here because classical Advaita Vedanta will say, yes, by sheer devotion to Ishwara, by sheer devotion, you have a loving relationship with God. You have a loving relationship with Krishna. By the grace of Krishna, if you get that realization, you are Brahman. Advaita Vedanta has no complaint there. All that Advaita Vedanta wants is you have to realize that you are Brahman. You are that absolute reality. Do it with self-inquiry or do it by surrender to God. By the grace of God, you will get that knowledge. Sri Ramakrishna says, what is there in the Vedas and Vedanta, my mother has shown me. So, the Divine Mother can give you that knowledge. God can give you that knowledge. If, you are, if your path is just devotion to God, certainly, by surrender. Today itself, somebody was saying that uh, Ramana Maharshi, the great non-dualist teacher, he said there are actually these two paths, the path of self-inquiry and the path of surrender to God. Both will take you to enlightenment and freedom. Good. Let me take a look at the comments and questions. Ashok says, we love your stories, Swamiji. Yes, I love the stories also. I remember we had a master who taught us Vedanta in our training days as novices. He was this wonderful monk. Um, he passed a few years ago. Very jolly. He looked like a huge baby. So he was very fair and totally round and chubby. And he has this glowing face. And people warned him that you should shed weight. You're becoming obese. And he would tell me, he's a Jewish child, like he would tell me, you know, it's all these skinny people. They're jealous of me. That's why they, they're telling me to lose weight. Anyway, he was a great scholar of Vedanta, but he was a great devotee. A great lover of Krishna. Uh, very devoted. So, and he loved telling stories. And we all knew that. So, and we, we'd be bored with the Vedanta classes, you know. We would um, trick him into telling us a story. And he said, Swami, that story, this happened that way. We would twist the story. We knew all his stories. But we'd twist the story a little bit, get it wrong. And he would say, no, no, no. You don't listen. How many times should I have to, do I have to tell you that story? Listen, this is how it was. And good. So the rest of the class was pure entertainment. And then the bell would go and the Swami would um, get very flustered. He said, you all are so mischievous. Next time, no more stories. I will finish this. Uh, and he would, he would start the class with a clear statement of intent. I am going to finish this paragraph or this page of some Sanskrit commentary. Uh, and nobody is going to stop me. 
but after some time he would get sidelined we would uh, trick him into telling us another story <laughs> rama says what is meant by retaining individuality non dissolution of subtle body uh, actually the subtle body can remain in the causal state so subtle body can remain as subtle body also uh, that is rare but such i have heard from senior practitioners those uh, enlightened beings who retain their subtle bodies they are much easier of access to us those who go back into the causal state it requires much more spiritual practice for us to get help from them so uh, when vivekananda said it may be that i shall see fit to discard this body but i shall not cease to work i shall inspire men everywhere or human beings uh, all all beings everywhere till they know till the universe knows it is one with god now i have heard from a senior uh, very wonderful swami that uh, vivekananda is easily accessible he retains a subtle body and uh, he can help if is a somebody who is seeking spiritual enlightenment or the good of humanity there are people i know of at least a couple of one monk and one um, devotee great worker for the welfare of humanity they have had clear visions from vivekananda telling them what to do and there may have been many more like that so that's somebody who retains a subtle body those that go back into the causal state that requires much more spiritual practice so okay here is something from avatarology <laughs> study of avatars incarnations why do we speak about yuga avatar the avatar of an age so sri ramakrishna is for example yuga avatar avatar of this age after the passing of the avatar giving up of the physical body until the coming of the next avatar the incarnation retains a subtle body so that avatar is most easily accessible most powerful uh, immediate source of grace which was the most recent yes you can still and people still do access krishna and christ and all of the others but much more difficult because they have gone back into the causal state so that's that shri says i had asked about this once before and would like you to explain little more mahapurush maharaj told a widower that the deceased wife was residing in shiva loka is the same as brahma loka yes it's the same as brahma loka so residing in the presence of god yes rodrigo says the three bodies paradigm is only valid for this plane yes three bodies physical subtle causal just as we have physical bodies subtle bodies and causal bodies the universe too has a physical existence subtle existence and causal existence physical existence is this universe subtle existence is the cosmic mind causal existence is maya that's the unmanifest from that emerges this universe and it goes goes back into that causal state nine billion names of god i think we had watched it once or somebody had shared it last time but do see it rick has shared the youtube link it was made by a french filmmaker nicely made ashok says do we come back with our prarabdha karma still with us in a new day of brahma yes our prarabdha karma will fo- follow us across universes and it's all right that's our storehouse of spiritual evolution so what we have all the homework and assignments we did in our last universe 
if we have not become enlightened, not graduated yet, we still get credit for it. We don't remember anything at all, but uh, we start off in the new universe at a, uh, a higher level. Vishwanath says, Ishwar Anugrahateva Pumsam Advaita Vasana. Avadhuta Gita says, only with the Lord's grace that we get even interested in Advaita Vedanta. Yes. And the Lord's grace is upon us only when we have a lot of good karma. So a lot of good karma, that means everybody here who's interested, they're all interested in Advaita Vedanta, are people with a lot of good karma and blessings of God. Sangeeta says, there are specific temples in Karnataka where Swami Vivekananda's subtle body is summoned by Pranchitsyans. Our parents' generation witnessed this happen live too. Nidjari's question, I missed a question up there. Do you mean Brahma as Ishwara, the God we pay to in Bhakti Yoga, when you say his age is the same as universe's age? No. I mean Brahma as Brahma, Chaturmukha Brahma, Prajapati Brahma, or Chaturmukha Brahma, or whom we call Hiranyagarbha, who, you know, Ishwara, God, in the depiction, uh, in the Vaishnava depiction, is Vishnu or Narayana on the cosmic serpent uh, lying down on that. And from his navel comes a lotus. On the lotus sits Brahma. That is Brahma who emerges from the navel of Vishnu and lives for, what, several billion years and goes back into, enfold back into Vishnu. Vishnu is eternal. God is eternal. And Ishwara is eternal. Brahma is not eternal. Ishwara is the reality. Plus Maya. Consciousness plus Maya. So the God you pray to does not come and go. It's an eternal. Otherwise, it won't be God. Brahma comes and goes and the universe. Of course, from our perspective, it might as well be eternal. It's so, so very long lived, billions and billions of years. But still, subject, he says, Ah, Brahma Bhavanan local, Lokaha. Universes, all the universes, starting from the heaven of Brahma, including Brahma, is subject to coming and going, is subject to return. Very good. So this will be the last class uh, and we're shutting down for summer. Um, we will again resume in the third week of September. Of course, you will get notifications for all of that. And there is one more talk on Sunday, the last talk this Sunday. Please take care. Prabir Babu, you have the last word. You raised your hand. Yeah, Maharaj, uh, with your permission, I want to share a story. Yes. Uh, so in 1967, I came to Berkeley to do my studies. And within a few days, there was Durga Puja in Berkeley. So we went to the Ramakrishna mission and I saw this Swami who was doing the puja. And after the puja, I saw him in a three-piece suit. And that is the first time I saw a Swami in that. And I was really taken aback. <laughs> and it happened to be Swami Swadharandaji. And also, uh, he used to come from uh, Sacramento to all the pujas in the Berkeley ashram. And Swami Swadharandaji was the resident minister at that time so i had the opportunity to see them yes. meet me to them yes that's a wonderful story thank you so uh, shraddhananji is a very highly uh, revered both swamis shraddhananji and swahanandaji highly revered swamis and you saw them at a much younger age of course shraddhananji might have been still quite elderly by that time no he was quite young i, I have a picture of him still at the, that time Wonderful. Thank you. It's a good note to end this session on. Please take care and stay safe. Let me do a peace chant. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat 
श्री राम कृष्णा रूपण मस्तु